Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored. This episode represents part of a recorded talk given at the Connecticut Historical Society about the Institute of Living. Here to introduce the speaker is CHS's Natalie Belanger. In 1822, the Hartford Retreat for the Insane was chartered as one of the first mental health centers in the United States and the first hospital of any kind in Connecticut. In 2022, the CHS is exploring the story of mental health in our state. Recently, the CHS invited Dr. Harold I. or Hank Schwartz to talk about the history of the Hartford Retreat, renamed the Institute of Living in the 20th century. His presentation took us through the state of mental health care in the early 1800s, the reasons for the founding of the retreat, and its place in the development of modern psychiatry in America. Dr. Schwartz is a psychiatrist-in-chief emeritus at the Institute of Living Hartford Hospital and formerly served as vice president of behavioral health at Hartford HealthCare. He is professor of psychiatry at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and adjunct professor of psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine. His talk is presented here for you with minimal edits. Thank you, Eileen, for that very lovely introduction. As I start, I'm going to read a passage from this book, Mad Yankees, The Hartford Retreat for the Insane in 19th Century Psychiatry by Larry Goodhart, who is a now retired professor of history at UConn. This really is the definitive history of the earliest years of what is now the IOL, um, and a truly uh, uh, terrific book. As I read you this excerpt, if you feel comfortable, close your eyes and try to imagine, imagine seeing what you're hearing. Two Connecticut physicians recalled that they'd been shocked in their youth by witnessing such cruelty. Dr. Benjamin Catlin remembered a well-known sight about 1808 along the turnpike between Farmington and Hartford. A caged man, raving and manic, who shouted at travelers. He was subsequently moved to a nearby barn, unable to stand. He sat covered with a blanket year after year, and his food was thrown to him. Dr. F.D. Edgerton had a vivid boyhood memory of an insane man at a building, no better than the nearest stable. He was a haggard man, poorly, nay, hardly clad at all, emaciated, besmeared with filth. Edgerton recounted, his eyes glaring and sunken his hair and beard unkempt, chained to the side of the building. Around him were the bones that had been food. Eventually, the indigent man was placed with a private family. Similarly, William R. Cohn, a layman, long involved with the Hartford Retreat, remembered when he was a schoolboy seeing an insane man chained in an outbuilding under cruel conditions. Okay, open your eyes. That is the story of the treatment of individuals with mental disorder through the early 19th century. Placed in 
almshouses, poorhouses, prisons, bid out by towns to the lowest bidder, chained to the side of barns. Fairly terrible, but, you know, it kind of went along with thoughts about those who had mental disorder. They were, after all, demonic, possessed by the devil, congenitally inferior, and deserving of little better. Dominique Escarol was um, a physician at the time, and he did a survey of the asylums across France at this period. And he said, I've seen them naked, clad in rags, having but straw to shield them from the cold humidity of the pavement where they lie. I've seen them coarsely fed, lacking air to breathe, water to quench their thirst, wanting the basic necessities of life. I've seen them at the mercy of veritable jailers, victims of brutal supervision. I've seen them in narrow, dirty, infested dungeons without air or light, chained in caverns where one would fear to lock up wild beasts. Well, change was afoot at the turn of the 19th century. And it came from Europe and Great Britain. Um, this is um, a book uh, written by Samuel Took um, about uh, 1813. We have a copy of this book in our archives uh, at the Institute of Living. And it was about the York Retreat, founded by his grandfather, William Took, in 1796. William Tooke was a Quaker, part of a Quaker community. Um, York had um, one of these older asylums. There were reports of terrible conditions there, and there were a number of deaths um, that were publicized. And the Quaker community came together um, under the leadership of William Tooke and established a new kind of institution, the York Retreat, based on the notion that this was, that mental disorder was not possession by the devil, but a disorder of our colleague human beings, and as such, needed to be addressed with respect and dignity for the afflicted. There wasn't much medical care at the York Retreat, but there was a lot of kindness and compassion. And it was the beginning of what came to be called moral treatment. More, much more on this as we proceed through the talk. Around the same time, in France, Philippe Pinel, who was the medical director of the two major asylums in France, wrote this book, a, a treatise on insanity. His advance was to say, mental illness, yes, it, it is a disorder. It's a medical disorder. It's an illness. Therefore, we have to treat people with dignity, and respect. And famously, he struck the chains from the mentally ill. The combination of Pinel's approach, this is a, a medical illness, and we need to treat people respectfully and unchain them, and the approach from the York retreat, dignity, compassion, respect, speaking to people, attending to their psychological and spiritual issues, this is what came to be known as moral treatment. Here in the United States, it was to take hold. 
And of course, one of the things I'm so pleased to be talking about is the extraordinary role that the Hartford Retreat for the Insane played in its taking hold here. But first, the, the context, the background, the social, cultural, religious con context. So it was in 1818 that the Congregational Church was disestablished as the official religion in the state of Connecticut, enabling the sprouting of other denominations and a sense of religious toleration and the spurring of private philanthropy um, that, that came with good works. There, there was a new divinity that stressed moral agency. It wasn't the kind of you know, Calvinist predestined um, uh, position um, that was uh, more in keeping with the Congregational Church, I believe. Um, this new divinity stressed moral agency and rejected predestination. That meant if you helped people do better through institutions and services, they might actually do better. So between 1808 and 1817, there were 257 distinct charitable organizations that arose uh, in Connecticut. The Connecticut Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Asylum for the Deaf, the list would go on you know, as longer than my arm of the kinds of, of new institutional, um, really enlightened um, organizations, enlightened for the time, that sprouted up. De Tocqueville wrote that the Americans made associations to give entertainments, to found seminaries, to build inns, to construct churches, to diffuse books, to send missionaries to the antipodes. They found in this manner hospitals, prisons, and schools. While this was going on, Dr. Eli Todd, a Farmington physician, was very interested in issues of mental disorder for very good reason. His father died when he was five years old, and he died of some kind of mental disorder. The history books don't say much about what was going on with him, but it, other than that it was a, a mental illness. His sister Eunice, who Todd cared for on and off for many, many, many years, suffered from depression for over 40 years and ultimately died by suicide. Todd, looking at the nature of our approach to mental illness, was appalled by what he saw. He said, the mind and body are so connected that there can scarcely be a disease of either in which the other is not involved, and in which medicine and moral treatment may not be advantageously combined. He also he looked at the actual techniques that physicians of the time were applying to mental illness and said, you know, if the doctor failed to bleed, to vomit, to purge, or to starve his patient into his senses, he considered the case altogether hopeless and forlorn, his own duty fulfilled, and his art to an end. That was the state of, of medical care at the time. So, Todd gathered a group of like-minded physicians who met regularly. You can almost um, think of it as, you know, in today's terms, it might be um, a discussion group or a book club. And they considered the establishment of an asylum to be developed with the principles of, of moral treatment. They engaged the Connecticut Medical Society. 
in a way that no other medical society in any other state has ever been engaged around the formal establishment of a hospital. The medical society um, authorized a study, the first, if you will, epidemiologic study um, of the incidence of mental disorder in the state of Connecticut. Now, you know, the number of insane people was counted by only 70 of 124 towns, so it wasn't very thorough, it wasn't very complete, but it was an advance um, in terms of trying to determine the need for an organizational response. There was a report also in the archives of the Institute of Living that went to the State Medical Society, and the State Medical Society issued that report and contributed $600, virtually emptying their coffers to the establishment of the Hartford Retreat. Again, no other state medical society has ever, in the history of hospitals in America, actually contributed with financial support to the establishment of a hospital of any kind. So it's you know a rather unique Connecticut um, event. The state held a lottery, the proceeds of which went to the formation of the Hartford Retreat. And so, uh, finally, uh, in 1822, the Institute, the Hartford Retreat for the Insane, I should say, was chartered formally by the state of Connecticut. Uh, in 1824, it opened its doors. The Connecticut Current, in 1825, reported on additional support that came from the Medical Society as they established uh, a society for the relief of the insane, theoretically with ongoing support over time that would come from the medical society, that actually didn't materialize. But they did contribute another $260 at that time. And, you know, these were considerable sums for the period. What was moral treatment in reality? Well, it, it's been variously defined. I think that, you know, Brockhaven, Brockhoven, who is uh, a historian of, of medicine, um, probably captured the signal most important common denominator, and that is that it's compassionate, understanding, respectful, dignified um, treatment. Others um, have said that when you think about the term moral treatment, read psychological for the word moral, that that's how the term was used and intended at the time. Todd's principles of moral treatment, first and foremost, mental disorder is an illness and as such should be treated with the best medical care available. Now the best medical care available in 1822 could have been bloodletting. But if you think about it, if you approached mental disorder with bloodletting, if that was the technology, the medical technology of the time, that was an advance. Even though we know that bloodletting has nothing to do with resolving mental disorder, but it put mental disorder in the same ballpark as other illnesses. In reality, Todd was not um, in favor of bloodletting, but in the early years, there was some bloodletting um, that did occur. Second, Patients were to be treated with dignity and respect, clothed, housed, and fed well. The focus was to be psychological, 
psychological, social, and spiritual issues. You had to talk, talk to people, to understand what was going on with them, and talk with them, talk to them with compassion and empathy. And above all, the law of kindness. Todd didn't write very much, so he actually, in in history, the history of, of psychiatry, hasn't been given quite the credit he would have gotten if he had authored books and and articles to any degree, but he did some, and he wrote about the law of kindness, and he took it very seriously. You know, at the time, if you think about it, there weren't very many nurses in a hospital, and there might be one or two attending doctors, you know, for the whole place. It was the attendants, um, really not particularly well-educated, but it was the attendants who were the connection, you know, to patients, and he wrote a manual for attendance that emphasized kindness. He interviewed people at depth for the positions, and he fired people who did not treat patients with kindness. So what were we looking at in terms of how people got into this psychiatric institution or early American asylum? Well, we didn't exactly have diagnoses back then the way that we have them now, and the ledgers we, don't, we actually didn't have an individual chart for every patient as we have now, actually in an electronic file you know, on the doctor's desk. Um, what we had was a ledger book with a line across the ledger book for each person when they were admitted that noted the cause of their mental illness rather than the actual diagnostic term. And here were some religious terror, disappointed affection, grief from death of friends, excessive venereal indulgence, austerity of paternal government, from severe and long-continued studies, perplexity in business, harsh, overbearing paternal government. We still see a lot of that on our adolescent <laughs> Excessive study, intense and protracted application of invented powers upon mechanism. Anybody guess what that might be in today's you know, terminology? Could it be obsessive compulsive disorder? You know, maybe. But metaphysical hair splitting with bodily inaction could also be obsessive compulsive disorder. Our third superintendent was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Amariah Brigham. He was a superintendent at the retreat for only three years, but it was a very important three years. He was the father of social psychiatry uh, in the degree to which he looked into the social circumstances of the people who presented with, with dis mental disorder. He was also the father of neuropsychiatry. He would do autopsies of deceased patients to examine their brains, believing that you could find in the brain the cause of the mental disorder. Well, in truth, you know, rarely do you find the cause of the mental disorder on a gross examination of the brain. But if you think about it, we are a major neuroimaging center, and we're Doing, we're pursuing today the exact enterprise 
that he began then with much more sophisticated technology than a scalpel and an autopsy table. We're using MRI scanners and PET scanners and, and um, etc. to examine the pathways in the, in the, in the brain and, um, and, and really getting at the same thing. The notion that the mind and mental disorder is located in the brain and we can learn about it by examining it. Brigham was an extraordinary guy. He was a founder of the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institutions for the Insane. That was the organization formed by 13 of the early superintendents. They were mostly called alienists then, by the way. Um, he was one of 13 founding it, and he was also the founder, a founding editor of the American Journal of Insanity. Uh, which is now the American Journal of Psychiatry, um, which is probably our number one, um, one amongst many uh, journals. Another interesting um, thing about Brigham is, you know, one of the uh, hot topics in the early to mid-1800s was phrenology which many people jumped to. Wasn't it obvious that you could examine the skull and see, you know, you could find the areas in the skull that suggest where the mental disorder is? Not according to Brigham. He was a skeptic of, of phrenology. So I'm talking about how wonderful the early people were, Todd and Brigham, but it's really not possible, well, it is possible, but it would not be right to just sell the history of the Institute of Loving and the Hartford Retreat. Because, um, you know, we all have had our ups and downs and the things we're proudest of and the things we're not so proud of. And so I note that as progressive as the retreat was, it was in some way an institution of its times. Brigham wrote that no improvement equal to what the whites have made or are capable of making is to be expected of the dark-colored races unless their physical organization is improved. Butler wrote, blacks, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, mention, Butler was the second um, of, the, of the early uh, superintendents. Um, blacks' uh, constitutional cheerfulness spared them from mental illness more than whites. And in fact, only a half dozen blacks were admitted to the retreat during its first 40 years. This is largely attributed to uh, the inability to afford access. It's very hard to read history deeper than that. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience. Right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week. Just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. Caring for our mental health looks different than it did hundreds of years ago. It even looks different than it did five years ago. Understanding how people have struggled with mental health throughout history helps us support ourselves and each other today. The Connecticut Historical Society presents a groundbreaking exhibition, Common Struggle, Individual Experience, an exhibition about mental health, presented by Hartford HealthCare Institute of Living, 
on view now through October 15, 2022 at the CHS in Hartford, Connecticut, or online as a virtual 3D experience at chs.org. Then women and mental illness. Um, female physiology, so male physicians thought, seemed prone to emotional disorder. You ladies were the basis of the business for the early retreat. Not completely, of course, but more than 50%. Doctors regularly tracked the onset of menses, postpartum, menopause, and lactation were all considered risks. Oh, we know today that postpartum is a risk, so this is not all um, nonsense. Um, but women were believed to be especially susceptible to mental strain and emotional stress. And in fact, women today do represent a greater proportion of people who are depressed um, per capita than men do, but from overtaxing the intellect with difficult studies, a predisposition excited by novel reading, and agitation on the near approach of matrimony. <clears throat> Today that's agitation on the near approach of actually having to throw the wedding. <clears throat> but you know, obviously um, there were some prejudicial attitudes um, toward women. And if you wonder where these attitudes might have come from, um, it pays to take a look at the medical staff of the time. I think I don't have to say anything more about that. <laughs> so, the retreat maintained its emphasis on moral treatment, but struggled with finances. It's important to, to realize that when we were founded, we got a small grant from the state, but the state did not consider this asylum its responsibility. We got a grant from the medical society, we had funds through the lottery, but there was no mechanism of ongoing funding of the Hartford Retreat. In other states, other states were beginning to found state asylums and assuming responsibility for mental disorder, but Connecticut was very, very late to that dance. Um, and so um, it was uh, difficult, um, to say the least, to maintain the retreat and to care for the significant numbers of indigent folks who presented for care just the way they do today, like everybody else. So Dr. Butler, who I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, became superintendent in 1843 after Brigham left. And he had a somewhat different experience. Um, over the beginning of his years there, these difficulties that I'm describing with finances uh, continued. Um, but in 1868, the Connecticut Hospital for the Insane at Middletown, now Connecticut Valley Hospital, or CVH, was established, which is to say the state finally took responsibility for care of, of the mentally disordered individuals who could not afford the fees that the Institute, uh, the Hartford Retreat, boy, I have trouble making that transition, don't I? The Hartford Retreat um, you know, could afford. Um, the retreat was relieved temporarily of charity cases, and it had to kind of reinvent itself. Butler was the right man for that. He was a manager. He codified practices. He believed in data management. The concept of the chart for the individual patient um, expanded. 
He improved the buildings and the grounds by bringing in Frederick Law Olmsted to redesign the grounds uh, in 1867 um, in order, in part, to make the retreat a more attractive place for people who could afford to be there. But at the same time, Butler was committed to continue treating the indigent and said that the retreat's care for the poor is dictated by humanity and not by our best financial interests. So the relief provided by the establishment of what is now Connecticut Valley Hospital was short-lived. Um, CVH uh, was soon overwhelmed itself, and the need to treat the indigent with little or no support from the state was again an ongoing struggle. Butler was also a builder. He expanded out the original buildings of, of the retreat. Um, he did that with a thing called the Kirkbride model. You'll notice um, that a center building with extensions out to the side, sort of perpendicular to the central building, then additional buildings perpendicular to those, and on and on and on. That was the Kirkbride model. And if you traveled around America and looked at the asylums as they were developing, most of them followed this particular model. Also came along with a manual for hospital management and, and all of that. Kirkbride was another major figure in, in early American psychiatry. But in 67, Frederick Law Olmsted arrived to redo the grounds. The, the retreat was the first of three asylums that he would design, and the first, uh, arguably, uh, more, most important of his Hartford projects. Thanks to Bill for that uh, tip, uh, Bill Hoseley, who was a wonderful Connecticut historian. He was an advocate for the mentally ill and a great believer in the mental health benefits of, of good landscape design. Um, he unfortunately struggled with depression, as did his sister, and became demented, and lived the last five years of his life at McLean Hospital in the, in the Boston area, which he had also designed. This was the era, now moving from the late 1800s into the early 1900s, of the development of cottages on the grounds of the IOL cottages, in which patients who could afford it could be housed. Um, and uh, they sprouted all over the campus. Most of them are now gone, replaced by other buildings. As we proceeded through the 20th century, the pressure, the financial pressure, the pressure to treat the indigent continued. This is just a slice of that issue from 1919, where uh, almost 60% of patients were either discounted or unfunded. World War I was a very difficult time. The Depression of 1909 and then the Great Depression were all stressful times for the retreat, which was falling behind in the upkeep of its building and grounds. And there was no further support from the state. And the city of Hartford decided that, well, you know, the retreat's really a private institution. It's private because it gets no support from the state. So let's tax it. Um, and that was the beginning of taxation for generations. Uh, it started out as $7,000 um, in 1877, but the taxation steadily increased. Sometimes it would be reduced, sometimes it would be increased, but um, it was always an issue, and the retreat suffered during this time. But help was on the way 
in the form of the next superintendent, C. Charles Burlingame, who was superintendent from 1931 to 1950. Pretty well-known guy at the time. He was the former director of the medical and surgical departments of the American Red Cross and credited with being the driving force behind the establishment of Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. One of the first things he did, well, the first thing that he did was to create the Neuropsychiatric Institute of the Hartford Retreat for the Insane. That lasted just a few years. Then he had the name changed to the Institute of Loving. And by the way, that came from a suggestion box for employees. <laughs> Never been able to figure out exactly how or why. <laughs> but there it is. Burlingame was a real believer in the medicalization of psychiatry, which was a tenuous issue at, at the time, uh, and said the psychiatrist should be on friendly terms with a stethoscope. Um, and in that movement uh, at the IOL and Burlingame's presence um, helped to pave the way for the acceptance of psychiatry as a medical discipline. Uh, famously, he is quoted as saying that the IOL should be part hospital, part university, and part country club. And there is the beginning of, of what you all have heard of, you know, the era of the uh, famous Hollywood stars and politicians coming to stay at the, I, at the IOL. That book I showed you, um, you know, when we started the talk, suggests that that's really overblown, that there weren't quite so many famous celebrities um, in, in that day and age, but there clearly were some. By hospital, he meant the, the focus should be on medical and neurological aspects of care. Uh, by university, he emphasized research and education, very serious um, about both, and we became a major research institution um, at that time, and, and, and remain. Um, and by country club, you know, as I look around, I would say he meant part Canyon Ranch, part Betty Ford Institute, um, and part, you know, Cancun Resort. <laughs> Burlingame was also a builder. This was the research building. I don't know if you know the name Carl Prebram, but he was one of the first uh, primate researchers. Um, and um, he was housed on an upper floor uh, in this building. Uh, this is the building today, um, where I happen to have my office. Um, some of the medical developments um, in today's eyes um, look, you know, less than wonderful. Um, one was, uh, this is a resuscitation machine for insulin coma therapy. Individuals at, at the time were placed into an insulin coma, which, as you know, is quite dangerous, and were then resuscitated from that coma, and it was felt that that experience repeated um, over, over time um, would um, resolve uh, very serious psychotic illnesses. This is an early um, ECT machine. I remember the story when I came to Hartford Hospital, um, the, 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 the original director of the Department of Psychiatry at Hartford Hospital was still around, and he told me that back in the early days of the development of ECT, when the machines were like that, um, he was working in New York City on the Lower East Side, and he would tuck that 
ECT machine under his arm, walk up the steps of the tenement where the patient would be laid out on the kitchen table and administer ECT. No anesthesia, people holding him down, and, and all of that. Um, but you have to remember, we're talking about people who were, had, had no other seriously depressed, no other medication um, at the time. And frankly, people do die of depression when they stop eating and stop sleeping and, and etc. So it has to be seen you know, in that context. Hydrotherapy was also um, very big in the Burlingame era. Cold, wet sheet packs were a form of restraint that, you know, still, when I, when I was first a resident in the late 1970s, there was a little bit of it still going on. It might seem primitive, you know, wrap a patient up in cold, wet sheets, but if the alternative was um, chain them down to the bed, um, and actually, you know, it's the, the seal diving reflex when you're chilled suddenly um, works to, to calm you down. And many patients would ask to be put into cold, wet sheet packs rather than be restrained in, in any other way. We also had a psychosurgery suite. Um, lobotomies were an element of care um, for a time um, within psychiatry. Um, and um, we engaged in lobotomies for a few years until that, too, um, hit the dustbin of, of psychiatric care. But there are some, rarely few, psychosurgical procedures that are you know, still performed today, not by us, not at Hartford Hospital, but by very, in very, very specialized circumstances. Burlingame also, I mean, if you want to talk about building... Um, a retreat for the for affluent patients. Um, the country club aspect created Vauxhall Row. This was a, a row of stores that patients um, could enjoy. The Here It Is shop was part of Vauxhall Row. A squash court, an indoor pool, um, an outdoor pool, which we buried during my time. Uh, uh, um, a nine-hole golf course, fashion shows, music lessons and entertainment, sitting out on the patio next to the pool. By the way, these, none of these are patients. Um, these, are, these were all staff who posed for these photos. We had um, a facility at a lake out in the eastern part of the state. We could take patients uh, on trips to the lake. We had um, a uh, collection of cars, Packards for a while, Cadillacs later, with an, an auxiliary, always women, drivers, in uniforms, who would take patients out um, to the lake, take them into New York City or Boston to go shopping, um, etc. It was uh, a different time. And we had all kinds of workshops, um, occupational therapy, really trying to teach people um, uh, new sets of skills and re-engage them in work and professional life. A magazine for patients, The Chatterbox. Burlingame died in 1951 and the next um, superintendent, now psychiatrist-in-chief, because Burlingame had changed the name from superintendent to psychiatrist-in-chief, was Francis Braceland. Uh, Braceland was 
another very well-known psychiatrist at the time. He had established the Mayo Clinic's Department of Psychiatry. He was president of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He was the Navy's chief of psychiatry and ultimately a rear admiral in, in the Naval Reserve. Um, he came in, and now he was dealing with Hartford tax for $100,000 a year. Again, because the Institute of Living, you've seen it, right? It, you know, behind those walls, nobody knew what was going on there. The rumors were all, we're just treating the rich and famous, we're private, we must be rich. So why, not, why shouldn't the city you know, gain something back? Well, one of the first things that Bryson did was he tried to undo that insularity. Um, he engaged with the press. He started um, public lectures that were offered at the IOL that would try to explain mental illness and, and mental illness treatment um, to the public. And he was um, somewhat successful you know, in that. More important than that, in 1953, he opened the first adult outpatient clinic, and in 54, the children's clinic. This was very important, because this, this was an expansion from the concept of mental health services as inpatient-driven to the larger world, outpatient treatment. And, and that was just the beginning, as you'll see in a little bit in terms of the kinds of programs and services that that we, we offer today, which are so much more than just you know, inpatient-based. Uh, in 1960, he brought Bernard Gluick um, to the IOL, and Gluick introduced computers, both into research and clinical care. In 1960, very, very early, another, I think, pioneering um, step uh, that the Institute was uh, engaged with. As, as well as Braceland was doing, storm clouds would soon be gathering again. You've heard the term deinstitutionalization. Well, the history to that is the Community Mental Health Act of 1963 intended to transition government spending on state hospitals to government spending on community mental health centers. It was a great idea, but the funding never really followed that great idea. It was totally inadequate. Fewer than half of the centers that were originally planned were ever opened. The ones that were opened received initial funding but did not receive ongoing funding. But it was enough of an idea in an early plan so that states could close their state psychiatric hospitals. And patients wound up in the streets, in jails, and in prison. Um, and the pressure for indigent care increased you know, at the IOL. Then, the Medicare and Medicaid Act of 1965. It, it was a terrific development. There's no question about it. But there was a thing in that act called the IMD Exclusion, the Institute for Mental Disease Exclusion. It, it argued that reimbursement for state and psychiatric hospitals with more than 16 patients was not a part of Medicaid. So Medicaid was no longer going to fund state hospitals, even more incentive to just shut them down. Well, the IOL wasn't shutting down, and the IOL wasn't going to receive a, a payment for the care of the indigent, but they certainly turned um, to hospitals like the IOL um, in greater numbers following the Medicare and Medicaid um, Act. So much more pressure. But that was just the beginning. 
Now we move another decade or so forward into the impact of managed care. For those of you who maybe don't know what managed care is, very, very briefly, um, for years, for, for decades, actually, um, since the development of commercial insurance, commercial insurance paid for whatever the doctor ordered. You want to do this test? Yeah, okay, submit the bill, we pay for it. You want to come into the hospital? Submit the bill, we pay for it. Then things changed, late 70s, early 80s, um, with this concept of managed care, which was that you have to get the insurance company to pre-authorize the care that you're going to provide, or they won't pay for it. Well, that pre-authorization got so bad that taking OBGYN, for instance, women who were delivering babies were ushered out of the hospital in a day, and the state of Connecticut's legislature had to enact a statute that said reimbursement for the delivery of a child must be at a minimum of two hospital nights. Well, the Institute of Living and every other psychiatric institution, we were the underbelly, the soft underbelly of managed care because, as you can imagine, you want to pre-authorize care in medicine, well, you can show, look, you know, here's the lab values. The patient has sepsis, has to come into the hospital. You want to pre-authorize care for psychiatry, you don't have quite the hard data that you have um, for other areas of medicine. And what happened is from the, between 1985 and 1993, ADC is average daily census. That's the number of patients on average in the hospital on any one day. 379 in 1985, down to 88 in 1993. Can you imagine that? And then average LOS, that's length of stay. How long each patient remains in the hospital. 149 days in 1985. Pretty unthinkable today, right? But that's what it was then down to 12 days in 1993. For the IOL, that meant from the time I arrived in Hartford, I was at the time the chair of psychiatry at Hartford Hospital, not a member of the staff at the IOL, um, nine consecutive downsizings of staff. Nine. And programs. Imagine the chaos. And it was happening everywhere. Everywhere in America, psychiatric hospitals were either closing merging, being bought up by private corporations that somehow figured they could make a, a go of it. Everything was undergoing change. Um, uh, by the way, uh, while all this was going on, the total number of patients increased. So the staff had less time, fewer members of the staff, to work with still more patients. The answer for the Institute of Living was this, a merger with Hartford Hospital. Um, and that um, vision was established in July of 1993. The merger was complete in late 1994. And within just a few years, we were one of the best psychiatric institutions in America, again, as rated by US News and World Report. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the Connecticut Historical Society's exhibition, Common Struggle Individual Experience, at chs.org.